you know, we grew up in tribes. We've survived for millions of years as, as a tribal community. And we, we've learned instinctively to say yes to the adults around us and to go along with what they say because to disagree might get us ostracized from the group, from the tribe. And at five years old, we're not gonna be able to take care of ourselves. 10 years old, not take care of ourselves out in the forest and the woods on our own. So biologically, the brain is wired to agree and go along with whatever other people around us are doing. Welcome to the Alcon Addiction Podcast. My name is Lee Davey. I am not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone that doesn't drink alcohol and I spend every waking moment of my life helping other people do the same. Like right now in this little episode of the Alcohol and Addiction Podcast. I want to start out by talking about epic meaning and calling. I've just finished reading two books the second time around. Now, it's not often I read books twice. If you think about it, by the time you joss it, you're never going to read all the books that you want to read in your lifetime, right? So to read one twice seems to be a bit of a waste. But these two books that I've reread, I'm a firm believer that sometimes books need to be read during the perfect storm at the right time, okay? Good example for me was someone bought me Jack Canfield's Success Principles many, many moons ago. I started reading it, thought, what the fuck's this guy going on about? I can do anything that I want. What does he know? I'm working on the railway. I'm stuck in Vale. I can't do anything that I want. But then I reread it when I became someone who doesn't drink alcohol, and all of a sudden, his words really meant something to me. So it's always good to make sure that you're reading the right books at the right time, okay? So at the moment, I'm thinking, aren't I, about growing 1,000 Days Sober, about how I can provide intense value for people over a period of three years plus. Like, I want this home, this 1,000 Days Sober, this Strive Sobriety System, the Strive Community, I want it all to be never-ending. I don't want people to go somewhere else to get their shit together. I want them to get their shit together whilst they're on strive and 1,000 days sober. So how do you do that? How do you get people really interested and really wanting to stay? And I think the answer lies in games, right? Because if you think about it, uh, we play games all the time. Games, like, they they kind of, like, transcend life, right? They just keep going and going and going. We love games. So what is it about games uh, that make them really sticky? What is it about games that, um, you know, make and force our teenagers to just run away from the world and immerse themselves in these digital experiences for sometimes more amount of time a week than you would spend in your career, right? So I've been thinking about that. So I've read two books, one called Actionable Gamification by Yukai Chu. And um, Yukai has actually been a previous guest on the Alcohol Edition podcast. You can check that out. Although, if I remember rightly, the quality, sound quality wasn't very good. Might get Yukai back on, actually. Um, but that that's the first book I read. And the second book I'm rereading is Reality is Broken by Jane McGonagall. Jane McGonagall also wrote a book called Super Better. And um, both amazing, amazing people. Uh, I'd love to get Jane McGonagall on the podcast, actually. And they talk a lot of sense. And one of the things they say that the reason people love these multi-mass uh, player uh, online games like World of Warcraft and uh, World of Warcraft, <laughs> as you can tell, I don't know many of these games, is they all have like an epic meaning and calling, 
right? There's this, there's something bigger than them going on in these worlds that they sign up to that becomes a part of their inner drive that, that activates their goal setting part of their brain and gets them really cued in. And, and that got me thinking about my own personal journey and how epic meaning and calling has fitted into my life and has helped create 1000 days sober. And, and, and it is, it's all about making this decision to be someone that doesn't drink alcohol bigger than yourself. If you cannot make this decision bigger than yourself, if you cannot put it under the microscope of epic meaning and calling, if you can't, if it doesn't pass the epic meaning and calling test, then you're really going to struggle. So for me, for example, when I decided I was going to be someone that doesn't drink alcohol, I wanted to save my marriage. Like it was just, it was more about me. It was about my marriage. It was about the woman that I loved. It was a romance story. I will make the ultimate sacrifice and stop drinking, which was the greatest thing that I loved at that time because I loved this woman so much. I want this to work. I said my vows and I need them to work. That was my epic meaning calling. And then afterwards, when I became a striver, what did I do to keep that longevity? What did I do throughout my vigilance phase? I created the Alcohol Addiction Podcast. I created the Strive Community. I created 1000 Days Sober. I made my mission to be someone that doesn't drink alcohol much greater than myself. I gave it epic meaning and calling. It was like, I am going to create 1 million people that don't drink alcohol. That is epic meaning and calling for me. Okay. And now what I'm working on doing is, is transferring that epic meaning and calling to every single striver, every single striver who listens to the Alcohol Addiction Podcast, every single striver that joins the Strive Sobriety System, every single striver that decides to take the 1000 Days Sober Challenge are doing so because they feel within that challenge, within that experience, being a striver has epic meaning and calling. Why? Because when they become a striver, people are going to look up to them. People are going to look at their shine and think, where did they get that from? Our children are going to look up to them and go, wow, my parents is so, are so fucking cool, right? Like you're able to talk to your kids and reach them on a different level because your philosophy around alcohol and your understanding of alcoholism is so much more broader than it once was that you're able to shower your children with this newfound knowledge and do it at a pace, which means it's going to sink in to the right parts of their psyche and to develop that courage and that bravery for them to also stand alone throughout their teenage years and make a different choice, one that doesn't involve descending into the abyss of alcoholism. So for me, epic meaning and calling is really, really important and it will look different for every single person. So I want you to have a think about this today, folks, right? If you're on that mission, if you want to be someone that doesn't drink alcohol, what is your epic meaning and calling? If you don't have one, how can you create it? All right. Okay. A few announcements before I get on to today's guest. I want to say happy one year strive anniversary to Tone. I love Tone. I went I'm back in the UK. I'm going to be back there on March 24th. Uh, as soon as I get settled in and get rid of the jet lag, I'm going to jump on a train, going to head down to London. I'm going to buy this man some dinner and I'm going to say well done and give him a big hug about making one year on stride. I've actually spent a couple of times, uh, I've been with Tony a couple of times in London uh, just to spend the day with him and to talk to him and get to know him better. And, and for me, that's what it's all about. 
You know, it's beautiful that we have this digital um, community, right? But I do want to escape beyond those borders and to get people um, back slapping and shaking hands and kissing and hugging. Like when we become people that don't drink alcohol and we look around and think we need to uh, surround ourselves with new people, we don't need to look outside of Strive, right? So, you know, what we want to be doing is we want to be having Strive Life events. We want to be having meetups like AA have, but we'll have them as Strive with our different philosophy, doing our different thing. That is one of the goals of 1000 Days Sober. That is what epic meaning and calling is all about. Okay. So me and Tony, we get into that. And when we're going to meet in London, I'll invite other strivers from the UK and we'll have a little power. Right. And also big congratulations to Roy. Roy recently joined the 100 Day Club. Now, Roy hasn't been with us that long, but because we seem to attract these type of people, it seems like she's been there forever. She's such an integral part of Strive right now. Right. Um, and Roy, you know, she lives in the Washington area and she recently met up with Michelle and Michelle is in our 1K club, right? So Michelle and Roy met up in a bookshop, had a cup of tea, got to know each other. And that's what it's all about, right? Our goal is to turn our online relationships into live friendships. These people are my customers, folks. These people are my friends. These people are my community. All right. Now, I have started to run weekly workshops every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific time. That will change. The time will change anyway when I get over into the UK at the end of the month. But right now, get over there to uh, www.1000daysober.com and sign up for our weekly workshop. Okay. We answer, or I answer on there, the two questions that are going to be key for you to become in a striver. All right. And then I'm going to give you all the lowdown on the Strive Model for Change framework and the Strive Sobriety System and how it all works, okay? Our next Strive Sobriety System begins on April the 26th, all right? April the 26th. So if you want to uh, become 1,000 Days Sober or if you're interested in it because you don't have to take the commitment to do it, all right? That is what the Strive Model for Change is all about. Uh, just to remind you of the six stages of change, stuck, thought, research, initiative, vigilance, and enlightenment. Stuck. I'm stuck. I'm not quite sure if I want to give up drinking alcohol or not. I'm really stuck. I don't really think that alcohol is a bad thing. I'm just stuck, 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 stuck. Thought. Hmm. I wonder if I could give up alcohol. I wonder if I could moderate. I'm starting to think now about alcohol in a different way. Research. I am preparing to make change. I am really looking into this in a deeper way. Initiative. I am taking action. I have decided to join the 1,000 Days Challenge and I am on my way. Vigilance. I am deep into this 1,000 Day Challenge and now I need to maintain my flow. I need to make sure that I don't take a step with back, backward step. And if I do, I know what to do if that happens. And E, enlightenment. Alcohol is in the rearview mirror. I'm such a more confident and outgoing person. I'm really comfortable with being uncomfortable. And now it's time to build my rockets and go to Mars. That is a strive model for change. It covers every single area of addiction. Okay. And if you want to be a part of that, we will meet you where you're at. Okay. But you need to get over to www.1000daysober.com. Sign up for that workshop. Either watch it live or get a copy of the recording afterwards. And then you can sign up to join. Uh, strive sobriety system and the earlier you sign up the better because if you sign up earlier then you will get more of an experience of the strive community before the workshops start 
And actually, there's about 15, 16 introductory lessons that you get when you sign up. So it's always beneficial to, to sign up earlier because then you can get used to all the systems. And then when we hit the go button on April 26th and we open the doors, boom, you can hit the ground running, right? It costs £40 a month, which is absolutely nothing. Don't think of it as a cost. Think of it as an investment because we will be saving you thousands of pounds a year uh, through not drinking alcohol, okay? If you've got any questions, email me, thetruthaboutalcohol at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram, 1000 Days Sober, and we're on YouTube, 1000 Days Sober. And please rate and review this show. Rate and, re- rate and review it on your local podcast feed. It really, really helps. And do one more thing today. Epic meaning and calling. Tell someone about the work we do. It will help you tremendously. Okay. It really will help you. It will help me. You'll be scratching my back. Epic meaning and calling. You'll be doing something for someone else. And intrinsically, you will feel really rewarded because you're about to change someone's life. Now, talking about changing someone's life, this guy, my next guest, Gary Van Warmerdam, he certainly changed many lives in his time. Gary Van Warmerdam is the creator of pathwaytohappiness.com, an interactive website with lessons for changing beliefs that drive negative thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. In 1994, due to his own unhappiness with work and emotional drama in his relationships, Gary became motivated to learn about how his beliefs affected his emotions and his decisions making. He studied extensively with Dr. Miguel Ruiz, the author of The Four Agreements. Wow, I wouldn't mind getting into his head. Um, Gary realized that with a proper approach, he could gain greater control over his mind and emotions. The key was unlocking the unconscious beliefs that were running his mind and emotions. With that, he could reclaim power over his mind. And with practice, he developed the freedom to choose the peace and happiness he was seeking. Educated and experienced as an engineer, Gary brings a common sense approach to changing beliefs, emotions, mindfulness, and living in greater happiness. And since 2001, Gary's been teaching, leading retreats, and coaching individual clients so they can live a happier lives. His methods are not limited to a particular philosophy, like mine are, um, but he has, his approach is based in careful observation and getting practical results. And you can find more about Gary's work over at pathwaytohappiness.com. He's got a training course over there. He's got a free training course over there. And he has a brilliant book called Mindworks as well, which is how I found him, okay? And we do a lot of work around beliefs and around Mindworks uh, when we're in the initiative and the vigilance phases of the Strive Model for Change. We recorded this video while Gary was backpacking through Costa Rica. So occasionally you'll hear the odd parrot, monkey, and uh, lion uh, growling in the background so i'm sorry if it affects your noise uh quality but i'm sure uh, it, it, it's okay i'm sure it'll be fine the quality that comes out of gary's mouth is more important so without further ado i'll shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of mindworks author and pathway to happiness extraordinaire gary van warmerdam how's he doing gary very well Lee. thank you um, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, I read this book. I finished it last night and um, I said to my wife, I love it when I finish a book. And that book was fantastic. Um, how long ago did you write it? Uh, that was a few years ago now. Mm. Six years ago now that I finished that. But it took a few years to write, you know, off and on between other projects and family health issues and you know, renovating a house. And so it's like starts and stops, but then I just had to sit down one day like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to will my way through it. Yeah. Um, for people who have never heard, it's called mind works, a practical guide to changing thoughts, beliefs, and emotional reactions. 
And um, just to let you know, give you some context, Gary, because you probably know nothing about me because I just kind of reached out to you. And Gary's currently in Costa Rica, so if you hear some animal noises, that's that's why. Um, we we at Strive and One Thousand Days Sober, we have a, a, a philosophy. Um, that we apply that helps us stop drinking alcohol permanently without having any desire to drink it. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason we do that is by realizing that our belief system around what alcohol is and what value it provides us with is not, not, not very healthy for us. Um, and, yeah. that, and that to create a new belief system um, of what alcohol is and what alcoholism is and addiction all kind of stuff, and you can look at it from a different perspective, then all of a sudden, over time, working, you know, doing different things, you don't feel any desire to drink alcohol anymore. And that worked for me, and it's worked for many, many people who've come through my program. So that's that's why I was reading, reading the book, because, you know, as someone who stopped drinking in 2008, for me, um, what literature and good authors do is they, they enable my thoughts to be put into words. There's sometimes... Mm. I, I just don't know how to communicate what I'm thinking. And then I'll read a book like yours. And I'm like, holy shit, this guy's nailed it. And, I, and this really makes sense to me. So let's just start by asking you a question. It's how, you, how the book starts. Talk about the two different worlds that we live in. Oh, I talk about the external world. Yeah. Where I see you on the outside. And then there's an internal world, which is a virtual world, where here's my thoughts of you, how I feel about you. You know, there's the, and in that virtual world is everything I think and feel about myself. It's all the narrative stories and emotions. Uh, It's that paradigm of everything happening in our mind and imagination. And what I point out in the book is what we create in our emotions, how we feel, has a whole lot more to do with this virtual world than what we call the real world outside, the external world. And so I spend the book like, what goes on there? Let's dissect it down and, and how to unpackage that in a very systematic way. And I, I have a three and a half year old, Zia, and even now at three and a half, I can just start to see how she's starting to create stories and belief systems and how she's interacting to the way that I give her praise, for example, and stuff like that. So talk a little bit about, so just be, but she's still got this kindred free spirit, right? So mm-hmm. what, is, what is happening to this internal world? How is it developing from childhood through teenage years to adulthood? I'd say, you know, we're essential nature is to love, to express and experience love. And you see that in a child and, and you see just when you look at a baby, there's this bubble of awareness before there's any thought, there's a consciousness and a love. That's the baseline of the soul. But then we start learning, and that's what we call unconditional love. But then we start learning, okay, don't eat dirt. That gets us a no. (laughs) We like drop something on the floor. We go to pick it up. We get no. We start to learn the word no, and we get this impression of this emotion with it. We're like, okay, well, we don't want that emotion coming from mom and dad. And so we start to avoid those things that get the nose and that emotional response. And we start doing the things that get us praise and rewards and attention and love. And, oh, that was beautiful. You did wonderful. And so when we dress nice, we get a compliment. Okay. And our mind starts programming, do the things that get us praise, do the things that make others happy. 
and we start developing a freezer personality. Do the things where we succeed, we get good grades, and we start to develop what I call it's kind of these little sub-personalities that I identify in the book as kind of this hero. This is how I'm going to be a success. And so we strive to be those, and we strive to avoid those things that get us the no, you're a failure, you're a loser, any of rejection, because we don't want to feel that emotion coming from other people, particularly when we're young. We feel that emotion in those words. And so this begins an automated system over time of pleasing others, trying to be a success, and we're seeking the emotional reward of feeling loved and accepted in those micro moments. We're seeking to avoid the rejection. And so we're just trying to be happy, but now it's this conditional happiness. And it's these micro signals of somebody else's opinion that we're trying to please, Mm. you know? And then we develop other things. We get an innate sense that like, this isn't right. Something's inherently wrong. The, The unconditional love that we seek and acceptance of ourselves and that we want from other people, it's like, we don't like it. And so there's also these other parts that rebel and say, there's something wrong with what's happening. I don't like mom and dad's anger. We rebel, we might get angry teenage years particularly you know we're like we're being conditioned to be a success and they got to go to school and get good grades and go to college and be a success and like we're being programmed but we don't know it and something in us is rebelling but we don't quite know what it is kind of like the matrix and the automated programming and we're still seeking to be happy but now we're so conditioned well i got to do it by saying by being the pleaser being the hero being these roles for other people and, and so we expect our happiness to come out of those roles and avoid being the loser, the failure, uh, upsetting other people. And so now, and, and I was listening to a podcast you had, uh, Jaffe, very good, by the way. And yeah, we talked, you talked about the masks. You, you can also call these roles our masks. I call them characters of our subpersonalities. Mm-hmm. And, and these just become automated programs of our belief system that have their own kind of sub-identity of ours. I mean, there's a few there's a few things that come up for me when you when you say that, alongside the no's, the yeses, the the some people some people spank their kids, you know, like shouting at their kid, you know, all these different things. There's also a lot of societal conditioning that's going on in the subconscious, right? So a lot of advertising, a lot of marketing, you know, there's also having an effect on on children as well, right? Oh, absolutely. You see the marketing to, to kids for commercials mm. change the landscape for what then kids go to their mom and say, oh, can we get this toy? Can we get this cereal? Mm. And they're being programmed to want it with the, with the music that's played. And the happiness in the music is now associated, that they feel for the music associated with that product. And they want that product because their mind has made this connection. It's like, oh, if I have that, I'll be happy. Well, it wasn't the product. It was the music that naturally is you know, their, their nervous system is responding to. But yeah, that's why it is. Whereas also there's biological conditioning of, you know, we grew up in tribes. We've survived for millions of years as, as a tribal community. And we, we've learned instinctively to say yes to the adults around us and to go along with what they say because to disagree might get us ostracized from the group, from the tribe. And at five years old, we're not going to be able to take care of ourselves. Ten years old, not take care of ourselves out in the forest and the woods on our own. Mm. So biologically, the brain is wired to agree and go along with whatever other people around us are doing. 
Yeah, even Zia now, three and a half. Um, one of the common things she says is, I want a friend. I want a friend. Uh, we went to a restaurant yesterday and she two girls uh, clocked, she clocked them. Whenever she sees other kids, she just goes up to and goes, hi. Like there, there is that biological urge and desire to just connect with other people, which is one of the reasons it's so difficult to stop drinking because those who don't drink are the non-dominant group and the dominant group are the drinkers, right? You know, it's mm. very challenging, you know? Um, the, the teenage years then become particularly interesting, especially in the work that we do around drinking. In the work of Jeremy Griffith, um, he's this evolutionary biologist from Australia. He calls his period resignation, where the, the, the children just want to be happy, unconditional love, yeah, they're being programmed, but very largely subconscious. You know, they're not, they're not conscious thought is not really coming into the equation. And then they become teenagers and everyone's like, you got to get good grades. Um, you're going to be a man soon. You've got to get a job. You're going to have to drink. You're going to have to take drugs. You're going to have to have sex. And all these things are coming. And then the kid's just like, I just want to play video games and, and, and just like hide and seek and stuff. And they start feeling, this isn't right. I don't want to do this. Or I don't want to behave like this. But then there's this other kind of societal pull that's like, but you have to if you need to fit in, you know? So that is what I find uh, is especially interesting. There's, well, there's, there's that I have to because society doesn't offer us many other choices. You know, there's mm. one, there's this financial we've got to provide for ourselves at some point. Our parents are going to kick us out of the house. Uh, you know, we can go join the army or something. You know, and they can feed us, but we got to do everything that they say. But there's, there's this individuation that's happening. But there's two things. I think people, plenty in their 30s and 40s are in jobs that feel that same way that teenagers felt and says, I've got to do this. I don't want to be doing this. You know, and they feel all those emotions of that frustration, like, where's another option? Mm. You know, how can I do something that is my, that satisfies my soul, is fulfilling that I can also provide for myself and my family for. There's that challenge. And, but there's also something else is, I'd say even before the, during the teenage years, but before the teenage years, it's like we learn really poor ways to work with our emotions or manage our emotions. And so we're emotionally repressed, you know, by the time we're teenagers, more so as boys, less so as women, but also as women, there's a, a lot of social conditioning to fit in, mm. you know, by what clothes you wear and what grades you get and what other kids think of you. You know, we're individuating by our, from our parents and that social connection, we look for approval from the people around us, which are our classmates and friends, and they can be pretty mean. And any kind of emotional rejection, we don't know what to do with it, so we internalize it. We may have internalized emotions for a long time. And so there's an embarrassment and shame and guilt and insecurity and fear of what other people think of us. You know, that we've been doing, you know, if not from age five or three, then it's certainly by age 12 and 15. Mm. And so all those emotions stored up inside then start acting out in, in unconscious and, and sabotaging ways. Mm. We start to having build all these strategies that cover them up, like alcohol, we numb them out. We become addicted to work and become a workaholic. If we stay busy enough, we don't feel our emotions. Um, if we exercise like crazy, we don't feel our emotions. If we manage food and create an eating disorder, we so fixate on that, we won't notice these other feelings. So they become these other modalities of obsessiveness and 
you know, not just alcohol, to, to numb or override and bury what we feel because we don't have an effective strategy like how do you feel emotion, process it, release it, and be done with it without another part of our mind having a reaction to having an emotion. Mm, yeah. Yeah, one of the things that I used to do was uh, I'd get very angry. So um, I didn't know how to deal with my emotions or handle them. And the way that I would kind of like uh, not deal with them is by shouting at, say, my wife. So I shout at my wife, and then I transfer my shame onto her, and then I start making it all her problem. And now all of a sudden we're, we're over there somewhere, and like my emotions are kind of clear. And, and what really helped me in the book is I always used to think it was thought, thought, feeling, and then my action, which is anger. And mm-hmm. you got me to see in a book that it's belief system, thought, feeling, and then my action. You need to talk and, about that a little bit. And, and sometimes it's belief system, feeling, then action. Mm. You know, uh, emotion is what is, is the strongest part of memory. So, you know, talk to a guy and he was struggling, you know, doing some exercises in my course. And he's like, he had this kind of saboteur. I talk about these. These are parts of the mind that have their stories. I don't say there are stories. It's like these minds just develop the stories. Then use the example, say he this saboteur was telling him, you know, hey, this isn't going to work. This is too hard. This is a waste of time. You know, basically trying to get him to quit. I said, well, you know, that is a story. It's a thought. But what's the premise? Why is it there? And perhaps he tried to do something. Maybe he tried to play a sport and, you know, and he was lousy at it and the kids made fun of him. And so he talked himself out of not playing the sport, said, nah, I don't want to play. It's too hard. I'm no good. I'll never get it. And he stopped playing the sport. And it saved him from the other kids making fun of it. And so talking himself out of doing something by saying it's too hard, I'll never make it, saying, oh, I'm going to quit before I start, is a protective strategy from being embarrassed and shamed and ridiculed and fear of what other people think. And so the belief system is now, if I do something new, I will feel terrible. And now starts... Okay, when he goes to do something, he has the thought, oh, it won't work. So that thought has, has this underlying foundation from another experience in life that he's operating the world with. Mm. So is it, is, it, is it safe to say that almost every time we're making a decision, it, it's, it's got its origins in a, in a set of rules and instructions that are laid out in a belief system? I, I, I avoid always. <laughs> uh, but it's... It's a very, it's to get to, to make it without a belief system is you have to get your mind quiet and you want to get into a state of calm and clarity, or you want to get into a state of love that you're inspired or something that's inspiring as a, as a positive emotion. And you know, that then you're like, this feels so good in the doing of it. I don't care what people think, you know, but if you are concerned about failing or succeeding that's a belief system, fear. We're looking for that conditional reward or fear of failing, punishment, what other people think. Like, let's exclude all that. Those are belief system based. And then getting to what do you really want to do? What's really going to satisfy your soul? It's not, your, it's not going to come from your intellect. So, mm-hmm. so those are decisions you can make that are not belief system based. But generally, the mind in the, is trying to you know, override that through our conditioning. So it takes some unlayering to get there. And, and I guess for people listening, a lot of these belief systems are created 
unconsciously at a very young age. So we can we can have a, a, a lot of compassion with ourselves, right? We we did not write these programs. You know, we we can have you know, three and five years old, we started to learn a language. We started to learn the association. You know, I was reading a book years ago because I got into sales at one point and I'm like, okay, how do I do sales? And why do I not want to do sales? And there's a great story of like, where did we learn the word no? And what does that mean? And what's the emotional imprint when somebody tells us no? Like that was one of the first words we learned. Mm. And it's, it's a personal rejection of, from people we love about our behavior. We're doing something wrong if we get no. So like, Going out and doing sales, you have to override this programming that was from age two or three. And, and our nervous system has wired the word no to feel that emotion when we hear it coming from people. And so we feel like we're being shamed and we've done something wrong if somebody doesn't want to buy our contract or our product. Mm. And so we're still avoiding the no. Even, and, and so you know, you're going to fail at sales or not want to do it for something that has nothing to do with your adult life. Something you carried over from your parents trying to not have you eat dirt or whatever it was that was going on, play with matches. You know, that word association and the way the neurons of fire in the brain holds that memory to that word in an emotional way. That's so funny because I, I hate selling stuff. And it's probably come from a say, it's probably, but my parents were all knowers not for an entire life. Dad can have a drink of milk. No. Dad can have a bag of crisps. No. Dad can have new trainers. No. It's no wonder I turned out to be a crap salesman. Um, <laughs> so, well, well then, then it not only affects you there, it's like, how do you feel about asking for what you want? You know, if you, if you get that no and it feels like rejection, you know, you create another layer that's preventative and say, you know, I'm not going to ask the question. I'm not going to ask for what I want. And, and then we create another layer. It's like, uh, that feels so frustrating not to ask. Let's bury and repress that. I won't be in touch with my own desires for what I want. Yeah, it's I, like, how do we um, feel better? We have to suppress the desire for what we want to avoid the question, to avoid the no. So now we're three layers deep in, you know, now we have the belief is it's not okay to feel the desire for what I want. Yeah, I don't and, like and, asking for that. Hmm. So that's, that's a belief system. It's not just the word no. It's like that, that's three layers of the belief system down. Okay. And it's And it's... And you can kind of look at it and say, well, this is, this is a terrible thing. But if you looked at what we created at age 5 to 8, 12, 15 years old, it was trying to save us from emotional pain. It's like, if I'm not in touch with this feeling of desire and I don't ask, I won't feel rejection. So let me bury the desire for what I want and not ask. It's protecting us from pain at that time. So it was a good program to have automatically at some earlier point in our life, but not when we're... 18, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old. Well, it, sound, it sounds like um, it, when we're uh, working at Strive, we're always trying to work by looking through the lens of long-term value as opposed to short-term value, right? So, mm -hmm. so for example, we always say there is zero value in drinking alcohol when you look at it through a long-term lens as opposed to the instant gratification lens that we typically look at these things through. And what you just described there to me sounds very similar in as much as even though those belief systems were created when we were really young, like three or four, and they provided us with intense value back then, they probably still provide us with value in our 20s, 30s, and 40s instantly in an instant gratification, short-term situation, but long-term they're causing us pain 
and we need to help people to to know to see that that's happening to, to then to develop the willingness to want to take on this short-term remove this short-term pleasure i guess yeah this is this is this is a good thing to see to see that it even in adult life we're avoiding the pain of hearing that no and having our nervous system fire with that guilt shame i've done something wrong in asking kind of response. Mm. So yeah, there is there is a still a short-term benefit. I'm avoiding the rejection reaction. But the rejection reaction is something that we're programmed to have and we can change that program. And kind of like in what you when you reframe it and say, okay, that's the short-term immediate pain I'm avoiding. And this is part of changing the perspective that's important. Like, what is it costing me? Mm. Okay, I can't have what I want. I'll I'll I can't let my authentic desires out. I won't be fulfilled. What price is that? And when you pull the lens out, you say, how painful is that? The, what I'm losing. Mm. And now the whole leverage changes entirely. And you say, I'm going to ask, you know, when I realize my, the pain of the loss of not asking is so big, but yeah, this is a, this is very much a perspective exercise and a lens exercise on time. Let's use, um, if it's okay with you, use a real life example that just happened and, and then we can have a conversation about it and uh, I'll be able to ask you some questions. You'll be able to lend your expertise on it. Just before I jumped on this call, we did a little communications call with um, my group and we were talking about empathy. And mm-hmm. um, I, actually gave a, I actually gave a situation where I was getting really angry because I wasn't get having enough sex, right? So I was getting really angry because I wasn't having enough sex with my wife. And then I dealt with it terribly, right? I, I had this belief bubble. We'll talk about that a little bit later. I had this belief bubble on why I wasn't having enough sex and the behaviors and the way that my wife was acting. And I went down there and it was completely the wrong time. The energy was completely wrong and I knew it. And then I just said, I want to talk to you about something. And it ended up in a row, right? So, mm-hmm. I, I'm explaining this to the group. It, talk, talk, you, you went and talked to your wife and yes. and, and interrupt. Yeah. Okay. I, I went to I, I went to talk to her with an incorrect belief bubble, knowing it was incorrect in a bad environment because you know she was kind of chilled out, relaxed, and she was doing something. So it wasn't the right environment. And I could see she wasn't in the right mood to have these conversations. And I was still telling myself this, and I still my own personal ego and needs overrode it and i said i want to talk to you about something and the way i, I did it was wrong right so i said mm-hmm. to my i said to my group how would you have gone about it differently you know given that challenge and one um a, a lady susie and this is the, the person I, I want to talk about in this little discussion she said to me i have no idea because i don't even know how to talk to my husband and and tell him that i want to work on our relationship Right. Mm-hmm. So using that as an example, there's a woman who's been married to a guy for 20, 30 years, and she yeah. doesn't know how to even ask him for like, it's a permission thing to even talk about their relationship. I know, I know, per- I know permission to talk about it, not even to yeah, talk about it, but no, yeah. Yeah. And now I know we're going to have, we, we, she's not here, so we can't ask a question. So a lot of things yeah. we're going to talk about hypothetical. What's going on there though, uh, Gary? Well, hypothetical now i'm making stuff up yeah uh, but you see this comes comes down to her not asking for what she wants and maybe not even in touch fathoming that she could want something or it could be better you know like not in touch with desire now it's safe to ask 
not, excuse me, not safe to ask, I might get a no. How's that going to feel? Particularly from our partner. Hmm. My God, the person that we want love and acceptance from the most, that's the most sensitive conditional love. Don't do anything that will get us a negative response. And I have no idea what their history is and what kind of responses she has from history or what kind of responses she's used to from parents or family members or bullies or, you know, the paradigm that she comes from about asking for what she wants or what she feels she deserves. I can give you so, some context on that, actually. And so let, that, me, let, oh, let, me, let, me, let me cover this way. Yeah. What does a person feel they deserve? Okay. I talk to some people and they start doing the inventory like outlined in my online course or my book and they find a part of their belief system says, I don't deserve to be happy. Mm. And like, why not? Because they did this little thing as a kid. It could be, it could be a horrific abuse scenario Mm. where they feel guilt and shame and they feel that that person, it could be a little thought they had a client of mine. She was, she's all of like three or four. And she has a little brother and mom's changing the diaper and she wants attention. She wants this love. She wants some attention from mom and mom's busy changing her brother's little brother's diaper. And, and she just has thought like her mind's trying to think like, how could I get attention? Well, if my brother was gone, if he would just fall off the table and die, you know, that's a solution of one of the billions that the imagination can come up with. And immediately she's like, Oh, that's a terrible solution. I'm a terrible person. And she felt shame in her had enough judgment in her own mind about having that thought carries it into her fifties. And it's like, I'm a terrible person. And then goes in seeking anything else that happens as I'm a terrible person. I don't deserve anything good. And therefore I'm not going to ask for anything good. So does it have to come from something that's a horrific abuse? No, it can come from this little agreement moment that we use to define and, and kind of hypnotize ourselves in this is all I deserve. So the possibilities are, you know, as, as many as what our imagination can come with, come up with. And then we just put faith in this idea of, oh yeah, I'm that terrible person. And that faith is this very hypnotic uh, trance that part of our psyche then lives in and pulls us back to. Talk so one of the that. ways I talk about belief systems is I talk about it is we're, we're being hypnotized. And most of that hypnosis is we're being hypnotized by our own thoughts in our own inner world. If we believe them, we are under the hypnosis of, our, of this repetitive thoughts of suggestion. Talk about faith a little bit more, because um, that, that was another part of your book where it kind of really hit me. It's like I was like, oh, wow, like the, the power of putting faith into something or, or some belief system, some thought, and also um, the, the lost power of not putting faith into other aspects. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, faith is this. And, and I'm not talking about religious faith. I mean, you have, you have faith in things that are known, like scientists have faith in their science and their rules and their laws. They, they know it. That if they drop an apple, it's going to fall at a certain speed. They know it. These, things that we, these are things we feel certain about. But for this woman, she felt certain she didn't deserve to be happy, that she was a terrible person. She felt certain about it. What is that? That's an idea. She has faith in an idea. And thinking about the, the metaphor of hypnosis, like watching a hypnotist say, okay, now take, if person's hypnotized, take your hand, put it on your face, hold it on your cheek. And now no matter how hard you pull, you won't be able to pull your hand away. And the harder you try to pull, you know, the, the stronger your 
will be the ball in your hand to your face. And you can see the person now try and take your other hand and pull it away. And they can't pull it away because they have faith. They believe it's stuck here on their face. Yeah. And what is that? That's a, that's a hypnosis suggestion. And it's done with faith. Okay. Now, faith is going on all the time everywhere. You pull out your wallet, you pull out your wallet, you pay for something. That's faith. That, that this piece of paper will be accepted there. We all agree, so it looks normal. You have faith in society, and you talk about it in your, you know, people believe like alcohol is pleasurable and it's social and it's good, you know, that it has mm. these positive aspects. They feel certain. So anything that you feel certain about, you have invested this kind of power into that idea. Okay. Now, well, not just in, in when it's about ideas. You know, you can take somebody from a political party on, on one side and they feel absolutely certain and confident in their point of view. But somebody else has a, has a completely different economic model, political model, foreign policy idea. They feel absolutely certain. They have faith in these concepts. And the really dangerous ones is the faith in the concepts about ourselves. It's faith of, I'm a terrible person. I'm a piece of shit. This is really hard. I'm never going to get this. Like, the chances that you getting, you know, you have to take it out and say, you know what? Maybe I don't know. Maybe there's a way. And, and that movement to, you know what? Do I need to spend this power? If you imagine your faith like money, would I put money in that idea? This is hard. I'm never going to make it. I don't deserve it yet. Would you put money in that idea? You say, that's a good idea. I'm going to put money in it. Like the way you would have stopped. Mm. And so if you start thinking, I have this power, we'll call it money as an example, say, stop putting money in those ideas. If you don't need to put money in those ideas, don't put it in there. If it's an idea that goes against you, take your money out and see if the idea stands on its own. On its own. Because if it's true, it's going to happen whether you believe it or not. I don't need to believe in the sun coming up. I'll wait and see. The truth will, truth will tell me. Hmm. Okay, so, so there's this extraction you can have of taking your faith out of these ideas, and it's a feeling process. It's a visceral, when it happens, you're like, there's an empowering consciousness that, that comes alive. When I gave up drinking in 2008, I read Alan Carr's Easy Way to Control Alcohol. Mm -hmm. But the most pivotal moment for me was 10 years before that. I read Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking Permanently, mm -hmm. and 18 years later, never crave a single cigarette from the moment I put that book down. That's 18 years later, right? So when I picked up the second book about drinking, I had so much faith mm. that I would never drink alcohol again. I didn't even finish the book. I just, it was almost, I didn't even need to start the book. Once I'd said, I'm going to stop drinking, and I'm going to use his method to help me... I had so much unwavering faith. So I want to tell people all the time, please, we need to generate faith that this works, right? That, that we can change the way that we think. We can change our belief system. So in Susie's situation, there's a lot of different faith things going on there, I guess. One is she's not got faith that he's going to say, yes, we can talk about it. And there's a lack of faith within herself going on as well, I guess. That I can ask, that I should ask, I'm allowed to ask, I deserve to ask. Mm. You know, faith is lacking from, from any of those. And we could say that she has faith invested in, I'm not allowed, she has faith invested in these other ideas, I'm not allowed, it's not okay, bad things will happen, I shouldn't bother him. 
Mm. Okay, Expect- so she has, you know, it's it's like there's not faith in certain ideas that I should and this could make things better and I can change my relationship. There's faith in this. I can't, I, I won't, I shouldn't, bad things will happen. Agreement. So, you know, what is this energy that makes these ideas powerful and those? Faith is the word I use. Some people may not like it, but whatever word you want to apply, there is a force that makes ideas become powerful, whether it's in our mind or in the world and other people's minds. And, and that force, I use the word faith to apply. There's a, I see a vicious circle here as well, because I, through personal experience and, and watching my members on Strive, I can imagine Susie's picking on Susie as an example. Susie said one of the reasons that she doesn't want to act, we were talking about a, a great book written by Charlotte Castle called Why the Buddha Married. And I suggested, I suggested that she buy it and that her and her husband read little chapters, you know, take turns in reading it together because it produces aha moments while you're together. And she said, I, I bought him the book as a present, but I don't even know how to get him to read it because he's just going to say, oh, why are you putting more self-help stuff on me, right? That's mm-hmm. a little bit of the context. So mm-hmm. that gets me thinking as well that if you lack faith in something, then your, your, your communication is going to lack something. So the way that you communicate with your husband, I want you to read this book because it's really important for our relationship. The way that you approach that, your body language, your tone, everything is going to be way off. If you don't have any faith in yourself that it's going to work or that you believe it or you believe you're worthy, and you end up in his vicious circle because he's then going to react you go straight into his hands. He's like, I don't want to read this crap because there's something about you that enables him to be able to behave in that way. Is that, am I making sense? Yeah, it's, it becomes very tangled when you, when you have a person's belief system interacting with another person's belief system because we, we have to look at what, what is our belief system and I say, what is this belief system of this hypnotized part of myself, right? Uh, and I talk about the inner critic and we have to break it down because we have to separate ourselves from these hypnotized parts. And so one of the ways I do that is I identify these subpersonalities. I guide you through that in the book and on my course. And so that separation, that gap is to see not just your thoughts separate from you, but your, the, the source of those thoughts. I don't deserve to be happy or I can't ask that question. That's not her authentic, empowered self she was born into this world with. Mm. Okay. That's a program story of identity. Okay. So it feels like a powerless victim. Okay. And it's got fear in it. And it's got a judge that's imagining he's going to respond negatively. And then I'll feel bad and judge myself because I did something wrong. Right. And, but maybe she's got, so, so those two parts. And now she, if she's feeling that and she shows up imagining he's going to respond negatively, but I'm going to ask, it is more likely that that message will come back with a rejection. So yeah, that becomes self-fulfilling. So yeah, Externally, people want to change their relationships. I want my partner to be different. Okay, that's your external world. A lot of times, what character are you showing up with with to speak for you that they are responding to? Because if you show up as a powerless victim, it's easy for people to say no to you. Okay? If you show up with faith, if you show up with love for yourself, people want to say yes to that feeling of love and acceptance. They want that. Okay, so... You are sharing yourself with other people. You're sharing your expressions with other people. If you show up and say, I, I love and accept myself, 
that's how I feel about myself. Just no story, no reason why. And that love and acceptance then goes out and now you're sharing that with other people. What you have for yourself is what you have to share. If I'm worthless piece of shit and I'm worthy, I don't deserve to be happy. My story is you are too. I see myself that way. I see the you, other people that way. This is how I see things. And so we express you are that way. You are worthless. Mm. Okay. And so the way we ask for what we want comes with that undertone, that unconscious little message. And people don't want to feel that. And what do they say? They say no to the character asking, the victim that's asking, but they might say yes to love and acceptance. So the emotion you ask with is, is often not the question they're responding to. They're answering the emotion you ask with. So like when you went to go talk to your wife, she's gonna, you're going you're gonna to come with anger? She's going to say no to whatever you say with anger. I, I just, I just, I just popped along as victim. Yeah, and, and what, yeah. what, what woman when you're talking about sex and intimacy wants to speak to a victim? Like, yeah, you know, what, what, what you just, what you just said there is absolute gold dust for people listening. Like, people, you, you need to listen to that last ten minutes, like three or four times, folks, to get it. You know, because it, it interacts in so many different ways. And we'll get back to Susie again in a minute. Um, but for one thing that come up for me was. Jordan Peterson's book, right? I, I never finished reading it because he, he, he got on my nerves after like chapter four or something. But the first chapter was stand up tall with your shoulders, your shoulders back up tall, right? So my, my parents raised me in a no mentality with no, with no love, no affection, none of that. But boy, did they make me stand up straight with my shoulders back, right? <laughs> so, so when people come to me and say, uh, like the other the other day, my my father in law, we're all here for a birthday celebration. He, he gets some wine out and he starts asking people, "Do they want wine?" And everybody, I could tell there was people that didn't want wine, and they were like, "Yeah, I'll have wine." And I know why because they left it, and I know them. I have personal relationships with them. Yeah, I'll have wine. And it comes to me, and with absolute pride, faith in my convictions and assurity, I say. No, Appa, I don't want any wine. I don't drink that stuff, right? And, and I'm like that with everybody who comes to me from the day one that I stopped drinking. Very proud. Now, there's a woman called Anna who works with, um, she's in, in a Stripe community. She really struggled with that until she realized or, or believed and had faith that alcohol, alcoholism is an invisible, violent, and dominant belief system, which is what we talk about. When she had faith... Everything changed, Gary. She grew an extra few inches. She, she started to look better. She spoke with more authority. And, and in your book, you touch upon energy transference and how there's an energy body and how we can, we can go into a, a church and feel different than if we went into a prison because there's, there's, there's energy. And, and I'm thinking of Susie going to ask her husband to read this book and his energy picking up on her energy and almost being able to like go, oh, she's she's a victim. I'll I'll get my bully out. Like I, I could just I could just sense it all, you know. Yeah, it's it's safe to bully this person. Yeah, yeah. But there yeah. is that, and there is that faith you can have. You're talking about your friend who felt empowered. She's not. She has faith in herself, but she didn't I'm have okay. it. But she didn't have it. Yeah, it right, it came. Right. But this, well, she, she, she probably took a lot of that faith that was invested in negative beliefs. She took it out of the, the negative beliefs, negative thoughts, 
And now she's got this faith, this kind of power. Where's she going to put it? You put it in yourself, but not in the idea of yourself, not in the image of yourself. Mm. You put it in like this feeling in your gut of love for yourself. You put this feeling of like whatever acceptance for yourself, whatever you are, and that everything's going to be okay. And I'm fine just the way I am. Like you, you don't have to be something or like, oh, I'm going to be a success. You don't have to put faith in that idea. Like just right now, right here. That you at least have you have some currency of power to work with. So, but you you know the reason people have so little of it, it's all invested in beliefs they've been programmed with for so long. I love that. I never thought I've never thought of it like that before. Almost like what it helps me is like I've got two lights here, and they they take equal amount of power, but I can make this one brighter than that one by taking power away from that one and making this brighter. I think that's a yeah. great. I think that's a great way of looking at what's going on here. I'm really good. Yeah, but this is this is why people have such a difficult time to make change, is because they have very little personal power because it's all invested in these unconscious beliefs. So, the place I start my program is let's go start looking at where all this currency of power is invested mm. in these false ideas. Let's start extracting it out. Then we'll have something to work with that will allow change to happen faster. Okay. So, so with Susie, so what, what would our advice be, Susie? We've, we've touched upon it a little bit here, but let's just summarize it. What, what would our advice to Susie be? Well, I can't, I can't imagine going and asking, well, my, my thing is like, well, what if you did imagine, take like this imagination exercise, what if you did imagine, you went and asked, what do you imagine will happen? Okay. So she, in her mind, I can't go ask. Okay, what will happen if you go ask? And she's like, well, he would respond with A, B, C, and D. I'm like, okay, she believes and has faith he will respond with A, B, C, and D. And then how will you feel? Well, I'll feel like one, two, three, four. Mm. Okay, so in her mind, her mind has played this scenario in the unconscious. This is the reaction I'll get. This is the emotion I'll get. One, two, three, four. I don't want to feel that way. I'm not going to ask the question. But just by saying, well, what, what do you imagine will happen? You see the different scenario and how she would feel play out. And she has faith invested. That's going to happen. She's certain of it. So certain she's not going to ask. So let's start subtracting that out of those imagined scenarios. Like, how can we find holes in that? All right. So then we start to go, well, how would you ask? Why well, ask this way? Okay. Let's imagine a different way to ask and to like where the question would be something he could respond favorably to. Mm. And, you know, I would start the, the question, the conversation even further back is, how do you feel when I suggest these self-help books to you? Yeah, I, that's brilliant. Yeah. You know, because it's like, you know, any book she offers, he's going to go to that feeling because he believes it means this. I feel like I'm a failure. I'm not good enough. I'm being judged and rejected. You hate me. Mm. That's what he believes in his internal world. Of course, he's going to say no to that because that book means I'm being rejected mm. and activates his whole belief system. So, okay, let's, let's, is that real? And, and so her part is like, okay, let's have an honest conversation. That's not what I think it means. How can we unravel that? Here's what I'm trying to get to. How could we get there together? So it's like, this question is not like this one upmanship of you're doing something wrong. I need to fix you. Cause that's a zero sum game. Both people lose. Well, not zero sum. Both people lose because yeah. then 
It's a lose-lose. It's a lose-lose. You know, it's like, how do we get there together? I'm imagining our relationship can be better. We can have more fun. What would that look like for you? And how could we get there together? Yeah, I love that. And one one of the things that you touched upon then by explaining and talking about faith, which really come up to me uh, and was really powerful to me, was where where you put your attention. Well, let's let's yeah, and I'll use this. Let's back up and I'll talk about the attention. It's like this uh, this kind of well, what does she imagine his response will be? You have to put attention on these ideas that are stored and hidden from us. It's like you said, the belief system's invisible. This is invisible until we look. Okay, imagine asking. Now imagine how would he respond? Now it's visible. And then you ask the next question. What would you feel if he responded that way? Oh, I'd feel terrible. I'd done something wrong. I'd upset him. I'd be afraid. So you generate all these emotions. Like you have a chance to now take your faith out because you see it. But this is the key. It's like... You're seeing it as a movie. You're seeing as this outside observer. And so this energy that's stored in these ideas, the way you get it out is you have to go look at this belief. He's going to respond this way. And I will feel this way because I've done, I've asked the wrong way. I've upset him. It's my fault. Feel guilty. Like, look at those as ideas. But you have to see the idea as separate from you. That is my victim that would feel like it's done something wrong. That is my fearful protector that says, don't ask because he will answer this way. Oh, he's trying to, this protector is trying to prevent me from feeling bad. So it's saying, don't ask the question like, oh, those are different parts of a mind who's done this immense calculation on his response and say, do I need to live by these parts? But to do that, you have to hold your attention on them. And with that scrutiny, that attention allows that faith to come out when there's a gap between you and these ideas of your virtual world. Mm. And this is part of the inventory process where I have people kind of really write this out, see what your subpersonality characters are saying, what emotions are generated, what they're imagining. And you can start to extract all the faith out and you have that power within, within yourself instead of in these old ideas that worked for us when we were five and 10 years old. But yeah. that attention, it's the tool you have to work with. It's the, it's the, it's that Excalibur that's going to cut through, you know, all these stories, but you have to pull it out of the stories to begin with. <laughs> so it's this mm. kind of, of <laughs> catch 22. Well, you need to I, get your attention. So you start that process slowly in the beginning, but then it accelerates as you we, get more and more control of your attention. After reading your book, you know, like one of the things I, I've been saying to Susie and other people when I've been talking to them one-on-one is to, is to practice because, a lot of the work we do on Strive is writing. We, we do online groups and stuff, but a lot of it is writing. So I've been trying to get it to write from the observer stance. You know, mm-hmm. ident- identify which character archetype is, is showing up in, in a certain situation. Uh, in this instance, uh, um, you know, victims playing a, a role here. And then start saying, oh, so Su- uh, Susie victim or whatever name she wants to put on it and then start yeah. writing like that because if she gets into the habit of doing that writing then she'll get in the habit of thinking like that and then that kind of detaches from the emotion because now it's not me it's like it's the me the real me is observing what's happening between these different character types and I, I love the character archetypes idea I haven't done the exercise yet because I only finished the book last night but I'm going to mm-hmm. write down all my character archetypes. I'm going to give them all names. It's almost like I'm yeah. schizophrenic. I'm going to, and then I'll be able to go, oh, there's childish. The biggest one for me, childish Lee. There's childish Lee. 
popping up again. And, 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 and I can recognize him more and more if I give him a name and I write about him and I talk about him in kind of like third person type thing, you know? Yeah. Like, mm. You know, being honest that we have these different parts of our personality, it's like, yeah, there's a, there's a stigma. We have, oh, am I schizophrenic because I have different parts of my personality? This is completely normal. You know, the normal person has like 12 of them. And then, you know, if we've been through some trauma in the past, we'll have more of them. Uh, it just depends how much, how strong they are emotionally at different times. I, you describe it. We're not the same person at work as we are when we're playing with our kids. No. Okay. We aren't the same person when we're figuring out, you know, uh, you know, whether to buy a house, you know, or go on vacation. It's like, it's like there's a different parts of our brain that are wired to do different things. Okay. I want to go on vacation. I want to have a lot of fun. Okay, I need to be financially responsible. Those are different parts of our brains assigned to do different things. Okay, so we've got a playful side. We've got a responsible side. We've got a sexual side. We have an impulsive side. We have a long-term thinker. Okay, we have things that are going to kind of look out and protect ourselves and our family. You know, so these are all kind of things we've developed. Now, what do you want to do with them? I want to, I want to operate with awareness with them and use them to my advantage instead of be a puppet to all the little impulses they have. Okay. And so, you know, let's be honest that they're there and say, Oh, I don't want to be such a friend. Like you, you have what you have going on in there. It's You've got really- multiple voices telling multiple different stories and they change all the time. Like, yeah. what is that happening? Let's be honest. Something's yeah. in there. Let's be honest about what's in there and we can use it to our advantage instead of ignore it, which is probably going to work against us. That recognizing that the, having faith and putting attention on the fact that they're there and looking at it from a different perspective than they do currently there's so much value in it. Like we were just we were just talking on the call, for example, about em- empathy. You know, about how when we were drinking, we were kind of lacking it a little bit, and now we're not drinking. We're developing it more, and it was uniform down the group that everyone said they find it difficult to have empathy for their partners, right? And and th- talking to you now, all it is, if you think about it, all it is is when they're talking to their boss or they're talking to their friend. They talk. They it's this. It's a certain character archetype that's talking to those people. Call it. Call it. Lee the Lee the nice guy. So Lee the nice guy is talking to these people. But then when it mm. comes to my husband, it's Lee the victim. Lee the judge. Lee the child. Right. And it's just yeah. like, hang on a minute. I do know how to talk to my wife. Not because I could just get Lee the nice guy to talk to my <laughs> wife. Right. Um, yeah. You know, it's just like it's just. I think it's really helpful to to realize that these character archetypes exist, and then, you know, I, I guess I guess people worry what happens when they don't exist anymore. Oh, see, that's that's one of the things. Like, a lot of people are so identified with "I'm the perfectionist," "I've got to make everything perfect," or "I'm the victim." Yeah, and everything is wrong in the world is because of me. And then there's this this thing that happens. Like, okay, if I let go of that, who am I? And, and one of the fears will be, well, I'll be nothing. I won't know who I will be. And, and so the mind kind of, because the mind, <laughs> so you can move into consciousness in this process. You're watching the mind react to the process of it changing these stories. And in part of changing these stories, you have less and less faith in this character. It has less and less power. And so there's this mind that narrative that is dying. Dying's okay. Or it's changing and change is okay. Sometimes, you know, I go so far with my clients, I have a conversation with their characters. They're like, well, let's have a dialogue. Let's talk to your inner critic. 
Mm. And the inner critic starts to look one way as like this big, scary, you know, Darth Vader, you know, is afraid of. And, you know, and then it turns out it's this little boy. Well, I'm just trying to help keep you out of trouble and remember to do everything. Tell you everything you should do so you don't get yelled at and criticized. You know, it's like, but I got carried away. They're like, oh, okay. So here is this part of your brain that's designed to help you remember to do everything right. It's just become so loud and, and abusive. And so you start to even see these characters in a different way. And are they dying? Is there a fear of them turning to nothing? No, they're going to turn into something else. Mm-hmm. Just like we're turning into something else. We're, we're going to go to sleep tonight, and it's going to feel like we're falling into nothingness when we close our eyes and go to sleep. We're going into nothingness. And we trust that's okay. And then we wake up and we create a new day, something different, hopefully something different. So there is that kind of part of those characters that goes through transformation, which is kind of the ego as a way to frame it, that, that gets afraid. It's usually more afraid that it's protective role, like the inner judge of like, I've got to keep you doing everything right or else you'll do nothing and be a bum. It's more afraid that you'll do nothing and be a bum and that its job is to avoid criticism. Like, well, if I don't keep you pushing to be a perfectionist, you will be, you know, you're going to get criticized and that's going to hurt emotionally. So my job is to keep you from other people's opinions, hurting you emotionally. Like, well, yeah, but I'm exhausted Hmm. and I'm stressed and I'm miserable. Why? I don't know that. And that's not my job. It's like, okay, well, we need to reframe your job. Your job is to help me be happy and fulfilled and productive. Okay. So let's like change the job that we gave that character, that part of our brain at five years old. So there's change that's going to happen, but isn't that what we're looking for? Yeah, it is. It is. It's, um, we have had the same thing with drinking now. People, people like, um, they identify themselves as fun time Larry or something. And, and, you know, they're they're not, they're not even thinking of, of like a conscious archetype. They just think like, it's a personality they've created of them. This like physically, I'm fun time, Larry. And then if I if I'm if I stop drinking, then I'll be miserable, Larry. And then nobody's gonna love me anymore, which is, which is going to be linked to different archetypes within themselves. Yeah, I will. Right, miserable, Larry. Like, why would you be that person? Because that's the one that they were programmed to believe. Also, but you can mm. also let go of that one. You know, you can create a fun time, Larry. Mm. You can create another kind of Larry. You yeah. can create another part of your personality when you have that faith and go. No, I'm going to be sober. I'm going to be ha- and happy. Like mm. I don't know how to do that yet. Let's go figure that out. Mm. Let's go figure you know, that so, out. So, yeah, and it's and and here's one of the biggest resistances people get to start. They're like, "Well, I don't see how I'm going to get there," and you won't. You won't see the end destination or the whole path to get there. I know from my engineering background, like, well, I like to see the whole like the method to solve the problem. It's like, okay, if I do this, 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 okay, well, I get there. In this work, it's like. I know where I am. I can't stand where I am. I got to at least leave here and start moving forward. And it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to drive cross country. I don't know at every gas station I'm going to stop or restaurant or hotel I'm going to stop and sleep at. I'm getting in the car and I'm going to start driving. And, you know, I'll figure out when I need to take a rest and get some sleep and get some food and get some gas. And, you know, I'm going to figure the rest out on the way, but I know I'm going that way. And back to faith again. Yeah. So if you can, you have faith that I'm going to, and this is one of the biggest keys to change is like trust that you will get there. Mm. That faith in the process. And if it's not this process, some process, some change, some continual step forward 
my life is going to be better and I'm going to get to where I want to be and be, be I can't get to a place, but feel how I want to feel. Yeah. Or at least better than I do now. If you can say, I'm going to commit to that. I don't know why. I don't know how, like, I'm going to drive cross country and trust that I'm going to get to the other side without knowing all the turns I'm going to take. But I'm going to trust that I get there because that's how we get there. You know, anything that we learned, we trusted we would get there. Play a musical instrument. If you learn to type, you know, you made a lots of wrong keystrokes. We still make keystrokes, but eventually we get the email out. Okay. So all of these things we learn by little iterations of repetition and trust, like keep practicing. And there's an incredible amount of change that happens in a lot of those little steps. This is why I think Strive is so important, so fantastic, because whilst, whilst they're learning a philosophy to become around belief systems, they're working in this peer group of like-minded people, and they're able to look at them, all transform and get there, and that in turn is help building their internal faith, because they can say, well, if, if they could do it, then I can do it. So, you know, that's really important. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's if, if they can do it, I can do it. If I can yeah. do it, anybody yeah. can do it. Yeah. Did you see somebody else like, okay, you started there. That's why stories that now. That's why stories sell. That's why people listen to this and they go, Oh, Lee David did it. He was the biggest drunk he'll ever, he'll ever meet. <laughs> if he, if he can do it, huh? <laughs> then I could do it. This, this silly lad from yeah. the North of England, uh, Gary yeah. kept you an hour. Really appreciated your time. Um, enjoy your holiday. I will make sure that everybody listening gets to, uh, the link to your website uh, encourage them to you get a free online course and then it goes onto a paid version. Very definitely do that, folks. And his book, MindWorks, is absolutely fantastic. And um, hopefully we'll get Gary on again in the future to have more chat with him because an hour is not long enough. But, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on, Gary. I have faith. I'll see you again, Lee. Nice chatting with you. Thank you for listening to the Alcohol Edition Podcast. And before you bugger off and go listen to someone more important than me like Tim Ferriss or Joe Rogan, I've got a few things to tell you about. First and foremost, if you really like the show, please go to your podcast platform, rate and review it. Give it a five-star review. Tell everyone how great I am. That'll be really, really appreciative. Um, Secondly, if you want to learn more about the work that we're doing here at 1000daysober.com, then head to that website, 1000daysober.com. You can learn how to get involved in this amazing project to be someone who doesn't drink alcohol for 1000 days and beyond, okay? Um, Get over there, get involved. We will provide you with a tremendous support system and world-class workshop experience called the strive sobriety system okay it's uh, catered to hit you at all stages of this sobriety journey so if you're like contemplating whether or not you it's right for you to stop drinking don't worry we've got your back we'll hit you on that if you've been stop drinking for now seven days eight days and you want you want to make an even bigger inroads we've got you if you've actually stopped drinking for three four years but you still want to be amongst a community of people who don't drink alcohol and you want to enrich your life and live a fulfilled life we've got your back as well so get over to www.1000daysober.com okay and join our strive support system it is amazing you will love it if you want to follow us on social you can find us at 1000daysober.com on instagram and 1000daysober.com at youtube where you can watch all of these podcasts in the flesh rather than just listening to them 
Uh, without further ado, I'm going to shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of yourself. Thanks for listening. <laughs>